0: Please turn in your Bibles to uh, Isaiah chapter 6. In this opening uh, section here in chapter 6, we have Isaiah's call uh, to the office of prophet. And actually, uh, you have him recording an experience here, which all of us need to have something similar. Not exactly, but something similar to this. It starts off with the vision that he's granted and then uh, the mission that he's given. The vision he's granted in verse 1 of Isaiah 6, he says, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord seating on a throne, high and exalted, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Now here's this vision. Notice he sees it in the year that King Uzziah died. Uh, King Uzziah had been a great king. He died in 740 B.C. He had uh, led the nation for a long time and had advanced uh, their boundaries and uh, it was a powerful nation. But he became proud. And about four years before he died, he uh, did something which was forbidden under God's law. He undertook to perform some of the functions of a priest. And in the Old Testament, the priest only was to burn incense and so on. And he goes into the temple, and he takes a censer, and he's going to burn incense to the Lord. And he's confronted by the priest. And they said, Pertaineth not unto thee, O king, to burn incense. And uh, he's angry, and at that point, he's smitten with leprosy. God smites him with leprosy, and he's a leper until the day of his death. His son Jotham became a co-regent with him at that point and and reigned. And uh, then uh, you have his death, as Isaiah records it here. He says, In that year I saw the Lord sitting on a throne. And notice the Lord's in bodily form here. And... uh, the scriptures say that no man hath seen God at any time. Little girl, five-year-old girl, is drawing a picture, and her daddy says, "Honey, what you drawing?" She said, "I'm drawing a picture of God." She says, "Sweetheart, no one knows what God looks like." She says, "They w-, she said they will when I get through." <clears throat> uh, well, uh, he doesn't see God in His essence. No man has seen God in his essence. Here God represents himself in this vision in bodily form, in the form of a man seated on a throne. Uh, God is a king. God is a judge. God is sovereign. So here's this uh, sense of scene of majesty. It says his train, his robes fill the temple. And so he's seated on a throne in the temple. Now, Uh, This could well be the earthly temple here that uh, was built there in Jerusalem. And Isaiah sees him in the temple there, this throne. Now, the temple symbolizes the church, uh, the living temple made up of living stones. And the glory of God fills his people, his church, his living church. Our In his presence are the seraphs, in verse 2. Above him were seraphs, each with six wings. With two wings they covered their faces, with two wings they covered their feet, and with two they were flying. A seraph is just another order of creature that God has made. This is the only time it's mentioned in the Old Testament here. Uh, They have six wings, with two they cover their face and their feet. They, They feel they're unworthy to be in the presence of God. And they are there to obey, to do his bidding. And they cry out in verse 3. They were calling one to another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. Holy, the Hebrew word is gadosh, means unapproachable. Scripture says that uh, God is of purer eyes than to behold evil and cannot look on iniquity. Uh, the whole earth is full of his glory. Uh, the, God is glorious. His glory consists of his attributes. And everywhere you look in the earth, you see God's wisdom and power. It says the heavens declare the glory of God. The firmament showeth his handiwork. Look at the universe and you say, what an incredible being God is. Well, uh, here, as they cry out here, holy, holy hosies, Why, there's a shaking of the post in verse 4. At the sound of their voices, the doorpost and the threshold shook, and the temple was filled with smoke. Here's a scene of incomparable majesty. Now, in the New Testament, John says that the person he saw was the second person of the Trinity, was Jesus, was God the Son. In John... 1241, these things said Isaiah when he saw his glory and spake of him, speaking of Jesus. Well, what effect would it have on you if you saw a scene like that? Notice the effect it had on Isaiah. In verse 5, woe to me, I cried, I am ruined. For I'm a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. And my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. He is overwhelmed with sin, his guilt. And in effect, he says, if God's like that, I've had it. I've burned. There's no hope for me. He's exactly right. Precisely right. There is no hope for him. And he was a lot better man than you are or than I am. All of us are guilty, terribly guilty, in the presence of a holy God. We have sinned. We are men of unclean lips. We dwell among a people of un. We're sinful. We say sinful things. We do sinful things. We think sinful things. And we cannot stand in the presence of God. Have you seen the Lord? Has that kind of conviction come over you? If it has not, you're not a Christian. That's essential to becoming a Christian. To realize your spiritual undoneness before God. That's the beginning. That's what the Bible calls conviction of sin that the Holy Spirit produces. Now, uh, you notice his terrible concern there. Whoa, calamity is about to fall on me. And the twofold cause, his unclean lips and uh, his unveiled eyes, I've seen the Lord. That's a good response. Now, at this point, an emissary is sent from God to him. In uh, verse 6, Then one of the seraphs flew to me with a live coal in his hand, which he had taken with tongs from the altar. Um, the temple, outside the temple, or the part of the temple, but outside the central part there, he had an altar, a brazen altar, where they offered the lambs, the burnt offering. And, uh, so this end of scene there, the vision that he has, this, one of these seraphs takes tongues and takes a live coal from that altar and brings it and touches Isaiah's lips. And he says, and verse 7, With it he touched my mouth and said, See, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. Huh. Notice when that happened. It happened when Isaiah said, I am a man of unclean lips. When he said, I am guilty. I am a sinner. Then... The command is given, the seraph comes and touches his lips with that portion from the altar. That altar, of course, spoke of how sinful man can approach holy God. You remember, the high priest would take uh, a lamb, a spotless lamb, and he would confess the sin of the people over the head of that lamb, transferring their guilt to this innocent third party. Then he would kill the lamb, then he would take the blood of the lamb into the innermost part of that temple, the holiest of all, where the Ark of the Covenant was there, this box that had the Ten Commandments in it. And he would sprinkle the blood on the top of that box called the Mercy Seat. And then he would go out and tell the people, your sin is forgiven. God would show mercy to them Through the lamb, their guilt transferred to the lamb. That lamb's blood covered their having broken God's law. God said, there will I meet with you, there will I uh, commune with you. That's how God and man can meet, through the blood of that lamb. Now that lamb's blood, of course, cannot, could not in any real sense make payment for sin. Uh, That lamb (coughs) uh, could... Picture the real Lamb, Jesus Christ, God the Son, who would make payment. Not all the blood of beasts on Jewish altars slain could give the guilty conscience peace or take away the stain. But Christ, the heavenly Lamb, takes all our sin away, a sacrifice of nobler name and richer blood than they. He was the real Lamb, and the plan of God from all eternity before we ever created the world, was that in time God the Son would come and be man and God and would voluntarily take our guilt upon Himself. He'd be the Lamb. On that basis, God forgave Isaiah's sin and Adam's sin and Abraham's sin and David's sin and Moses' sin and your sin and my sin when we do what Isaiah did and say, I'm guilty. That's repentance. When I recognize my guilt and I turn and I say, God, I've been rebellious and I asked your forgiveness and now I will seek to obey you. I surrender to you as my master. You be the master, I'll be the slave. That's repentance. And anything short of that is not repentance. No such thing as being a Christian and living your life your way. You have a master when you become a Christian. And you are a servant like joining the Marine Corps. When you join the Marine Corps, you don't say, I want to be a Marine, but. You just join the Marine Corps. Same with becoming a Christian. Uh, remember the man that came to Jesus and said, Lord, I'll follow thee, but first. Jesus said, no man having put his hand to the plan looking back is fit. That's a false start. The other side is faith, where I believe in the Lamb. I trust God's promise to forgive me through the Lamb. I trust His promise to forgive me on the basis of the death of God the Son, who could make atonement for our sin because of who he was and the fact that He was an innocent, spotless Lamb. Now, uh, has that happened to you? Have you seen the Lord? Has has your sin been purged through this? As his vision that he was given. But then the mission that he's given. The vision he's granted. The mission that he's given. In verse 8. It says, Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send? And who will go for us? Uh, here's God's question of whom to send. And uh, God seems to have a problem. He needs to send somebody to the nation there. And uh, he sort of uh, it's designed to elicit a response from Isaiah. He didn't say, Isaiah, you go. He, he does that on occasion. He said to Moses, you go. He said to Jeremiah, you go. But to Isaiah, he said, whom could I send? And who will go for us? Notice the plurality. God is a plurality. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. Uh, and uh, so here's God... It's seeking to elicit a response. Isaiah's recommendation. He recommends himself in verse 8. Then I said, here am I, send me. Man, a minute before he's been overwhelmed with his guilt. But now that he's cleansed, he volunteers. Here am I, send me. Uh, The... He's grateful. A sense of God's pardoning love animates us to serve. God, I want to do something to show my gratitude. Send me. And God commissions Isaiah in verse 9. He said, go and tell this people. But notice, notice what he's to tell them. Oh, this is solemn. Go and tell this people, be ever hearing, but never understanding. Be ever seeing, but never perceiving. The Living Bible paraphrases that like this Though you hear my words repeatedly, you won't understand them. Notice what he was to do to this people, what the effect of his ministry would be. Verse 10. Make the heart of this people calloused. Make their ears dull and close their eyes. Mm. Inasmuch as they would not be made better by his ministry, they would be made worse. The effect of his preaching would be to harden and blind them. Harden their hearts, blind their spiritual eyes. Let me read you from uh, the commentary on Isaiah by Elik Motyer. Elik Motyer is going to be with us in a few weeks on a Sunday night. He's coming to town at another church, but he's going to preach here on Sunday night. He's written out probably one of the best commentaries on Isaiah that's ever been written. He's a British theologian and minister. Here's what he says. He says, Isaiah faced the preacher's dilemma. What is the preacher's dilemma? Lots of them. He says uh, if hearers are resistant to the truth, the only recourse is to tell them the truth yet again, more clearly than before. But to do this is to expose them to the risk of rejecting the truth yet again, and therefore of increased. Hardness of heart. Listen to this sentence. It could even be that the next rejection will prove to be the point at which the heart is hardened beyond recovery. You could be there. Very possibly some of us here today. Are at that point. Why was he to do this? Why was he to make their heart harder? Look at the last part of verse 10. Otherwise, says God, they might see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn and be healed, be converted, be forgiven. Hmm. The Living Bible paraphrases that. I don't want them to see or to hear or to understand or to turn to me to heal them. Mm. God is a God of love all the way through the Bible. God is love. God is holy. God is just. God is love. God is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, says the Lord, but that the wicked should turn and be saved. But, at the same time, when men refuse to do that, they don't sin lightly. Earlier in Isaiah, God says, Cease to do evil, learn to do well. Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins be scarlet, they shall be whiter than snow. Though they be red like crimson, they shall be his wool. He pleads with them, but they harden their heart. And when they do that, when men refuse and harden their heart, after a period of time, after being long-suffering, God, in a judicial act, hardens their heart. Uh, so that those who weren't willing to repent... Can't repent. Let me read you from Zechariah chapter 7, where Zechariah, several hundred years later, comments on this passage. uh, Comments on this situation, and he says this. But they refused to pay attention. Stubbornly they turned their backs and stopped up their ears. They made their hearts as hard as flint, and would not listen to the law or to the words that the Lord Almighty had sent by his Spirit, through the earlier prophets. So the Lord Almighty was very angry. Now, uh, you notice God's agency in such hardening. In Isaiah 29.10 it says, And God gave them a spirit of stupor, or sleep, where they couldn't understand. Or, in Second 2 Thessalonians 2.11, where... Uh, Paul is writing about a period of time like our time where men refuse to turn to God and shut their eyes to his light. Paul says, The Lord shall send them, for this cause, the Lord shall send them a strong delusion that they should believe a lie, that they might all be damned who believe not the truth and had pleasure in unrighteousness. Think about abortion. Not a person in the United States that doesn't know that abortion's wrong. And yet look how many defend it. That's what's known as going against light. That's what's known as hardening our hearts. Very dangerous spiritually. It says God shall send them... A delusion that they should believe a lie. What's a lie you might believe? You might believe, I'm okay with God. God's a nice guy. <laughs> I'm a nice guy. I'm okay with God. That's a lie if you don't repent and believe. And if you do repent and believe, there'll be a change in your life. A lasting, genuine change. Not a perfect. you won't be perfect, but you'll be different. And you'll be seeking to do God's will, and there will be fruit. Now, um <clears throat> Isaiah says how long how long is this going to go on lord his question of duration verse 11 then i said for how long o lord and he answered and his answer is an answer of destruction and preservation first destruction then preservation he answered, Until the cities lie ruined and without inhabitant, until the houses are left deserted, and the fields burned and ravaged, until the Lord has sent everyone far away, captivity in Babylon is what's being pictured here, and the land is utterly forsaken. So destruction. How long? God says, Well, Isaiah, until the whole land is just destroyed, till the Assyrians come, till the Babylonians come, till I destroy this city till I destroy this temple, and they all go into captivity in Babylon. Destruction. But there is preservation of a remnant in uh, verse 13. And though a tenth remains in the land, it will again be laid waste. God would leave a remnant, but then he'd waste the remnant. But there'd be a remnant of the remnant. In verse uh, 13... But as the terebinth and the oak leave stumps when they're cut down, so the holy seed will be the stump in the land. You cut down a tree, tree's dead in a sense, but there's life in the stump. And here comes a little shoot coming up out of the stump. He said it'll be like that. There will be a remnant. I'll bring a remnant and they'll be the holy seed, the true people of God. You remember they went into captivity in 606 B.C., and then 70 years later, God brings them out, and He's purified them, and He brings them back into His land. And there is a remnant of true believers. Well, uh, goodness. What a, what a ministry He was called to. Let's apply that to us. If we're Christians, Isaiah had a mission, we have a mission. We have the Great Commission, where Jesus said, go into all the world, preach the good news to every creature. Uh, they that believe and are baptized shall be saved, and so on. Feet repentance unto remission of sin. Uh, ours is a mission of opening men's eyes. We live on this side of Pentecost. Christ has died. Christ has risen. The Holy Spirit's come in a new, fuller way to His church. And we go on a mission of opening men's eyes with the power of the gospel. Now, sure, as we go with the message of Jesus Christ and call men to repentance faith, there'll be those who harden their hearts. And so our ministry to them will be a hardening of their heart. But the great, great ministry will be the opening of men's eyes. And that's what's happened. And that's what was predicted would happen. It was predicted that the nations would come to be a part of God's true church, God's Zion. In the second chapter of Isaiah, it says it will come to pass in the latter days. The latter days begin at the first coming of Christ, biblically. That the mountain of the Lord's house will be exalted among the mountains. And all nations will flow into it. The word of the Lord will go out and all nations will flow. And that's what's happening. Here we are, 2,000 years later, the other side of the world, a part of God's Zion, a part of God's true church. And as we go with the gospel, that's what happens. Men's eyes are open. Whether we go into our next door neighbor, whether we're going overseas, God uses that. Uh, There's been tremendous progress as a church in every land. At 223 churches and uh, countries and territories, 200 years ago, less than 1% of evangelical believers lived or could be found outside of northern Europe and eastern seaboard of the North America. Now, more than one half of evangelical Christians live outside of Europe and North America. Christianity is no longer a Western religion. For the first time in 1,200 years, the Christian faith is once again has a non-white majority. At the same time, you've got one third of the world who've never heard of Jesus, who've never had an opportunity to make an intelligent commitment to Jesus Christ. Uh, you've got, while you've got some portion of scripture, at least one book of the Bible has been published in close to two thousand languages, which are spoken by ninety-five percent of the people in the world. Still, you've got three hundred million people in the world who don't have John three sixteen don't have a single verse of Scripture in their language. That's 3,300 languages that need the Bible or some portion of the Bible translated into their languages. There are a billion illiterates in the world. So there's a huge need. And God's still saying, whom shall I send and who will go for us? Remember, Jesus said, the harvest is plenteous, the laborers are few. Pray ye, the Lord of the harvest, that he would thrust laborers into his harvest. So, we need to say, God, here am I. Send me. Lord, I want my life to count. Use me any way you can. I understand I'm not my own. I'm bought with a price. An immense price. And Lord, here am I. Send me. Have you done that? If you're a Christian, have you said, Lord, I'm available to be used any way you see fit? Uh I want my life to count here. Are you equipped? Are you trained how to share your faith with others? We've got training coming up shortly. The EE banquet on February the 1st with Ron Steele with us. That will kick off some training. Uh, uh, Goodness, we've got our prayer chain where we're going to be praying for our World Missions Conference. What could be more relevant to this than our World Missions Conference? Sign up for that. As we say, Lord, thrust forth labors. As we pray, we got the Jesus video project coming up where we're going to join with 150 other churches here in the city and distribute the movie of Jesus' life, wonderful movie, as a gift throughout the city. Be a part of that. Now, maybe you're not a Christian. This is a very solemn passage if you're not a Christian, isn't it? And you might say, well, wait a minute, I'm not resisting light. I don't believe that it's true. I want to know that what you've said is true. I want to know the Bible's true. That's a valid point. And what we need to do is look at the evidence. But you need to seek. You need to say, hey, help me. And we say, great. God gave evidence. When God sent His Son into the world, He didn't send Him without any evidence. He gave overwhelming evidence. And uh, there's evidence that the Bible is the Word of God, that all this is true. And we'd be glad to help you with it. But maybe you know it's true, like I did for a long time. But yet you resist God, like I did for a long time. I knew Christianity is true, but I wanted to be my own master, and I wanted to live my life my way. And I could have crossed the deadline. Because no one knows where the deadline is for them, do they? For the dying thief, the deadline was right there next to Jesus on the cross. Somebody said, I think I'll play it like the dying thief. I said, which thief? There were two thieves. Those two thieves represent the whole human race. The cross of Christ divides the whole human race. There's a poem. There's a time I know not when, a place I know not where. It marks the destiny of men to heaven or despair. There is a line by us unseen that crosses every path, the hidden boundary between God's patience and his wrath. To cross that limit is to die, to die as if by stealth. It may not pale the beaming eye nor quench the glowing health. But on that forehead God has set indelibly a mark by man unseen, for man as yet is blind and in the dark. And still the doomed man's path below may bloom as Eden bloomed. He did not, does not, will not know, nor feel that he is doomed. He feels, he says, that all is well. His every fear is calmed. He lives, he dies. He wakes in hell. Not only doomed, but damned. Oh, where is that mysterious line by which each path is crossed? Where does hope end? And where begin the confines of the loss? How long may man go on in sin? How long will God forbear? Where does hope end and where begin the confines of despair? One answer from the sky is sent, you who from God depart. While it's called today, repent and harden not your heart. Let us pray. As our hearts are bowed, uh, <clears throat> if you're a Christian, have you said to the Lord, Lord, here am I, send me. I'm available to serve you and advance this cause, a great cause of spreading your word anywhere and everywhere. Are you equipped? Are you trained? What would God have you to do? Why not in your heart right now just say, here am I, send me. And think through the implications of that. Maybe you've done it before, but let's reiterate and maintain the keen edge of that. Here am I. Send me. Use me. But maybe you are not a Christian, but you've seen the Lord high and lifted up, sitting on a throne. You understand His sovereignty and holiness, your sinfulness. You've resisted, but you realize the folly of that. And today you're ready to Surrender your will. You want him to send that seraph with the live coal to touch your lips. Pray like this in your heart. Lord, Lord, I'm a man of unclean lips. Send your seraph to touch my lips. Cleanse me of the guilt of my sins through your son's blood. I trust You to do that, and I purpose to follow and obey You. Amen.